We're going to be in John chapter 12. And we're going to cover verses 12 through 19. So we'll begin in verse 12. And it goes like this. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Lord, we ask you this morning that as we exposit your scripture, that we may see the fullness of your character, the fullness of who you are, God. May you speak to us accordingly. May we see the true presence and reality of the coming king. Though he was sitting on a donkey, he is great and mighty and worthy to be praised. God, we ask that you, Lord, just give us a greater revelation, knowledge of your word. Just as we see the brethren here, they remembered these things, that they were written. May we remember, not just today's text that's written, but everything that you have written to us. That it may give us a hope, that it may encourage us, and even admonish us at times, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we are in what is called the triumphal entry. That's probably the title that is in most of your Bibles, regardless of the translation that you have, the triumphal entry. But you would have to say for some people it wasn't actually so triumphal. Now all that's going to matter on the posture of the heart. The way that you look at it, right? Because to God, it was triumphal. But to man, with his own agendas, his own attention, it was not very triumphal. Now, we're going into John in this text, and we talked last week about considering the cost. Considering the cost of what it is to follow Christ, to walk with Him, right? To serve Him. And we want to kind of keep that in the back of our minds, but we also want to know that after we consider the cost, then we therefore want to consider the advantage of walking with the Lord. Because there is many advantages. The ultimate one, right, is everlasting salvation with Jesus Christ. But there's many more advantages that come from there. 
But it all begins with the consideration of the cost, of what it takes. And there's, there's two things that are going to happen here. It can come from an, an authentic place or it can come from a place that's just out of appearance. You just look like it. You just look like you're a Christian. You just look like you're praying. You just look like you're reading the Bible. But really, you're just kind of going through it. Just going through motions. Just uh, no, no feeling whatsoever. It's, that's what's called a calloused heart. There's no true meaning inside. You know, like a lot of marriages, that they're married, but there's really no joy. There's really no love. There's really no excitement for the husband or the wife. They just kind of just just whatever. There should be a joy. There should be a joy in marriage because, of course, it's the demonstration of the gospel, but authentic versus appearance, because I think that we're going to see that today in this text. And the first one uh, that I'm going to go back to last week's text of being authentic was uh, Mary anointing Jesus with this very costly oil. Right. We saw that it was about a thousand dollars per ounce. That's a lot of money. But she was willing to just pour it upon Jesus and anoint his head and anoint his feet. And as a matter of fact, there was one guy who we could say he's appearance and his name was good old Judas Iscariot. Right. He tried to seem real righteous and say, what are you doing that for? We could have sold it and given that money to the poor. Because he was all about appearance. He was just all about the outside, but the inside was very corrupt because John tells us that he used to skim off the top of the money bag that he carried. Right? He would just take a little bit for himself. Imagine somebody passing an offering basket, and then the last one just says, let me just grab a little bit because i got to pay my light bill. I wouldn't doubt that that probably doesn't and hasn't happened in the church somewhere. But we're talking about appearance versus authentic. When the Bible talks about Mary anointing, it says this very costly uh, fragrance that she anointed him with. It uses the Greek word pistikos, which is derived from the Greek word pastuo, which is faith. So what it was is that it was a genuine adoration of Jesus Christ. This was real. This was not fake. This wasn't crocodile tears. This wasn't just being moved by her emotions, but she was really moved by the core of her heart because she knew who Jesus really was and what he was worthy of. It was a real faith, and it produced what came out of her. And so just keep that in your mind because there is an authentic and there is an appearance. Now, John 12 that we're in right now, all four of the Gospels have this actual sequence in it, and they all talk about it. Now remember, they're all from different perspectives, but they all give a little notion that's a little bit different. And I want to cover those because I think that they help us in putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Now bear with me today because there is going to be a lot of filling in the blanks per se. There's going to be a lot of adding in, connecting of the dots, putting everything together. Uh, we're going to jump back to the Old Testament. And so we're going to add a lot of understanding to put all of this together to realize what this triumphal entry is all about. But we jump back to Matthew chapter 21 when Matthew records this part of, of the triumphal entry. But in, in verses 1 through three, he says something a little bit different because he says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage 
at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And when you drop down all the way to verses 10 and 11, it says, When he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So Matthew adds in the part that he sends them off to find this donkey that he's riding in. John didn't include that, but he sent two disciples. You're going to find this donkey along with the colt. Unloose it. And if they say, hey, what are you doing? The master has need. The Lord has need of them. Okay. And so they did. And it says when Jesus was riding the donkey, that the whole city was moved. It means that it was, it was shaken. It was agitated. Uh, it was rocked to the core. I mean, there was a lot of hype going on. And we look in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Mark, giving his account of this, says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you, as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. So now you're going to find a colt, and as a matter of fact, nobody's loosed it and nobody has sat on it. And he says in verse chapter 11 of Mark 11 that Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he's on the donkey and he scopes everything out. Now he's realizing that the hour was already late. Uh, yes, uh, probably notioning to the time of day, but also the hour, time. His time is running short. My time is pretty much at hand. And looking at Luke's account in Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 40. It says, Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The rocks will cry out to me, some translations say. Now Luke adds in that they, they spread their clothes on the road. It's as if to lay out a carpet per se, laying out the red carpet, right? Go through here. It was, a, it was a, a symbol of honor and homage that they were paying to them. And they all began to rejoice and praise God. 
They were exceedingly glad. They were thriving. I mean, they were yelling at the top of their voice. The city was in an uproar. And it's as they were saying, all hail the king. That's what they were saying to Jesus. This is the same, same uproar, the same kind of situation that was happening in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 when David brought the tabernacle back to Jerusalem. Remember that uh, it was with the Philistines and they took it. So David decided to go grab it and it says that David was, was singing and there was music and there was all kinds of dancing and the city was in an uproar. They were in a joy. Why? Because the ark of the Lord is coming back home. Well, there was, uh, there was great joy. The same as what's happening right here in today's text. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the man Solomon, when he rebuilt the temple for the Lord and he dedicated it, remember, it says that the Shekinah glory of God fell so heavy upon the place that the priests couldn't even minister. They couldn't even do what they were called to do, but everyone fell on their faces and they worshiped God. They were all screaming and shouting praises to God. This is the exact same thing that was happening with Jesus riding in on the donkey. And a lot of them, it was because the mighty works that they had seen, they had witnessed the, the virtuous, the excellent, the powerful, miraculous abilities that not only they saw, but they understood. And so, of course, the teachers got, uh, or the, the Pharisees, they got a little upset. They got a little jealous and said, teacher, your translation might even say master. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to chill out. They're probably being blasphemous. Now they told him in the charge of a command, they bid him strictly. Admonish your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Warn them. And of course, Jesus says, reply, if these should keep silent, the stones would cry out. If these disciples of mine, if these believers, if they were to hold their peace due to their ignorance, to them not knowing, the rocks will do it. Now, I know I've used in the past that scripture, right? Because we can say, well, if we're not going to praise God in our worship, the rocks will do it. The trees will do it. And of course, who wants a rock um, out praising them, right? I mean, rocks don't even have arms, but they can out praise us. And so he said, the stones will cry out. Now, this is the same cry that the Lord said in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, when he said to Cain, what is this that you have done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a cry. Now, of course, he refers back to Scripture. Jesus did, and he makes this reference to the Old Testament. And he says as it, that... Uh, that it may be fulfilled as it is written. It says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's John chapter 12, verse 15, right? He's making a, a reference to Zechariah chapter 9. Well, in order to make sense of it, then we have to go back to 
the book of Zechariah. We have to make sense of what is going on there. Now, some of you may, if you study the, the, these books and these letters to get this understanding of what it's saying. On uh, Wednesday, we talked about the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, but that didn't mean the, uh, the strength in, in their voice that they had, but what it meant was their time of prophesying on the earth. Now, Zechariah is considered one of the minor prophets. Oh, but he had a great and mighty voice. Very powerful. So let's try to make sense of all of this that is happening so that we can put it all together. So what's happening in the book of Zechariah? Zechariah the prophet was sent to prophesy to the children of God. This was taking place after the Babylonian exile. They came back from exile after the 70 years the book of Ezra, chapter 5, states that actually Zechariah and Haggai, the other prophet, they motivated and they commanded the people to rebuild the temple and to seek after the fulfillment of God's promises. Look for what God told you he was going to do. You're coming back home. Now, just a side note, remember that the people had been taken away in captivity. As a matter of fact, uh, Jeremiah prophesied that. Remember Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, 29, 11, the one that we really like, but we have to go back and, and get the whole picture of it. And Jeremiah had pronounced a judgment. First, you're going to go for 70 years. You're going to be taken captive. I'm allowing this. Me, God, I'm allowing it. Why? Because of your disobedience, because of the hardness of your heart. I'm allowing you to be taken captive by your enemy. You're going to be going there for 70 years. And guess what? Get used to it. Build your houses, grow your gardens, eat of your food, uh, raise your families. You're going to have to go through it. So after this, they come back, but... If a lot of you don't know, when you're reading the book of Lamentations, there was only a few people who came back to Jerusalem, the city of God, to their own homeland. They didn't want to come back anymore because they got so used to being in Babylon. They got so used to being in a place of misery, so used to being in a place of struggle. They didn't want to come back no more. I've already learned how to live my life around this. So rather than to come back and follow God, then let me just stay here in Babylon. Let me just stay here where it's nice. Nobody bothers me. I can be lukewarm. I don't have to follow the temple rules or the commandments, but I could just say that I am a child of God because I've already gotten used to eating of this garden, even though I got to work harder. My children are being raised the same way, but that's okay. So a lot of people didn't want to come back. And of course, in Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah promises of, re, of a return along with God's presence and his new kingdom with the Messiah ruling over all nations. Okay, so Zechariah comes into play and Zechariah, remember, see, Zechariah, these prophets, they're not like us. They're not short minded like us. See, we tend to forget things. Somebody tells us something. The scripture tells us something. We tend to forget. They remembered and so he comes in the scene and he starts prophesying and he reminds them of this promise. Him and Haggai, remember, God said to seek after his fulfillment of what he said he was going to do. Now, the response of the people was, he's taking long. Why is he taking so long? 
Does that seem familiar to any of us? Because I know that I have been there. Why are you taking long, God? I mean, am I not your son or your daughter? Does it not matter what's happening in my life? Why are you taking so long to answer? This is the same thing that was happening here. Now, Zechariah answered by admonishing the people of God. And his response to them was, turn back to God and don't be like the previous generations. Don't forget what happened to them in the wilderness or even just this previous generation because they were, they were complaining, they were murmuring, they were backbiting. Don't be like them. Turn back to God and trust in Him. And for a while there, it seemed like they listened and they came to repentance. But as you read the book, you realize that it wasn't necessarily that way. Now, through the middle of all this, the prophet Zechariah, he has a series of visions and dreams. And God explains what he's doing. And, but he leaves out one important issue. And this important issue is the issue of when he's going to do it. Isn't that the question of all time, right? Uh, Jesus even said, not even the Son of, of, of God, not even me do I know the time or the hour, but that belongs to God. Now, we know that Jesus is God, and we know that Jesus does know the end of time, but basically the reason he said that is because he was in carnal form, and he was limited according to a lot of things. Remember, he gave up a lot of his rights when he came down. But Jesus being up there seated at the throne, Jesus knows the time. But again, it's still not for us to, to know or to try to figure out. Because as a matter of fact, if we knew when Jesus was coming, then let me just live my life the way I want to live it. And maybe, what, about a few days before he comes, I'll go ahead and pack my bags and, and, and I'll start living a holy, righteous life. That's about how we figured things out. God already knows us. So the meanings of all these visions, and you, I won't get into it, right, because it takes some time, but you can go back and read the book of Zechariah, but there's several dreams and visions, but it, just as far as the meanings, the basic meanings of this, is he's basically saying the 70 years, they're almost up. It's almost time uh, for you to start rebuilding. He reminds them of the sin that led them to exile, the rebellion. Remember, this is what happened. You don't want to go again. You don't want to go through this cycle. The same thing that was happening in the wilderness, the same thing that's happened to you and me over and over again. We get in this cycle. And he reminds them of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. That's what idolatry is. Unfaithfulness. Re, the, he reminds them of the rebuilding of the new kingdom and that it was going to be pure. It was going to be righteous. It was going to be spotless. Now, one of those, we see Joshua, the high priest. And Joshua, the high priest, has old, dirty clothes in which then the Lord removes them and he replaces them with clean clothing. And he's told that if he remains faithful, he'll become a symbol of the messianic king. Now, this is a picture of God taking away our sin and imputing us with his righteousness, right? We have filthy clothes on and he imputes us with the white garment. Remember the wedding supper of the lamb where Jesus said, friend, how did you get in here? You don't have a garment on. Bind them hand and foot and throw them in the lake of fire. And he tells them, of, again, the rebuilding of the new temple 
and that it's going to be a success only if they depend on the work of God's spirit. Not again, not us, right? Not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of God. So all of this promise that was coming, of course, was conditional and it was according to their faithfulness to God. He wanted them to pursue after justice and peace. So Zechariah asked him, are you ready? I've laid out before you the conditions. This is what's going to happen. Are you ready, Jerusalem? Are you ready, people of God? And there really wasn't an answer. They didn't respond to him. Go back and read it and you'll see it. So Zechariah 9.9, this is what John quotes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He repeats that. So this king that is promised to come, this Messiah, this king that's going to set up a new kingdom, he is to become, after that, a shepherd, but he's only going to be rejected. Zechariah prophesies about all this. This king is going to turn into a shepherd, and then he is going to be rejected first by his people, then by their leaders, who are also symbolized as shepherds. Then God gives them over to those corrupt shepherds. Kind of sounds like what's happening today. And I'm not talking in the political arena. I'm talking about the spiritual arena of the church. Upon setting up his new kingdom, God's going to confront the evil nations and the people's rebellion. Then he's going to pour out his spirit upon his people. And when he pours out his spirit, he's going to cause them to repent and grieve over their prior rejection. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what causes a person to weep because of their iniquity before God. When people sin, right? Does, does God forgive us? Oh, I fornicated last night. Oh, well, God will forgive me. Is, is, does that seem like someone who's baptized in the Spirit? Or the person who says, I just, I, I, I just tears flowing down how could I do that to a loving God? Yes, he forgives me, but how wretched of me. You hear the words of Paul that says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Of course, God forgives us. But how can we do that to someone that we love? That's the person who's been transformed that says, no, it's not that easy. No, I'm not happy because I've, I've strayed away from God or, or I'm not content. You're, 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 you're miserable. It causes you to repent. It commis, com, uh, causes you to lament and weep. That's what James said, right? Let your joy be turned into mourning. That doesn't make no sense. I want to be happy. I want to I I be joyful. No, let your joy be turned into mourning. Lament and weep to become serious before God. So, why does all of that matter? The book of Zechariah, everything that's going on, everything that I've just talked about. Well, Jesus said the rocks are going to cry out. We're going back to the rocks crying out. So what's he talking about? Was Jesus just literally saying, this rock is going to cry out and give me praise? Now, could it? Absolutely, because a rock does praise God at times more than we do. 
A rock does what a rock is supposed to do. We don't always do what we're supposed to do. But what Jesus is giving notion to the disciples is what he is doing is he's trying to give them a hint back to Zechariah through this scripture. What rocks are going to cry out? The rocks that, that were the temple was rebuilt with. The promises that came. Go back to the time when the temple was rebuilt. Those rocks that were used to build. Go back to that time frame. Go back and remember the promises. Go back and remember the covenant. Everything that's supposed to happen. And then you'll remember this is exactly what you're seeing. This is exactly what was prophesied that was going to happen. The promises that were given by Zechariah that day, those promises, those are the rocks that are going to cry out. The rocks of the temple. When Zechariah stood there and he prophesied and he talked about a coming king, today is the day the king is coming. See, we have to remember that Scripture is written for our remembrance. That's why, okay, now we're understanding why it is important to become familiar with Scripture, to read Scripture, to study Scripture, because now I can connect dots. Now I can understand what it's saying over here and over there. Now I'm becoming more equipped to do what I have to do. Jesus riding in on that donkey was a prophecy being fulfilled. Now, the donkey symbolizes the coming kingdom of God. So Jesus, the king, is coming in in this kingdom that he is promising. The donkey is a symbol. Why? Because a donkey represents humility and peace. I know that it's considered a stubborn animal, but in this instance, it's considered humility and peace. Why? Because a donkey is slow. A donkey is patient. A donkey isn't always in a rush, and it's not getting me there fast because he could have rode in in a horse. But see, horses are always connected to chariots, and chariots are always associated with people of war, right? People who want to just get their job done instantly. And don't let me be mistaken, God is a God of war. He's going to come back to settle account and he's coming back with a vengeance and with a wrath. But the first time that he came, he came in humility and in peace and he rode a donkey. But see, that's not our normal go-to is to be humble and peaceful. Because, right, I mean, we're pride rises up first and we don't always think of being peaceful. It happens to all of us, but it's the Spirit of God who keeps us in that place of righteousness. Now, remember Mark 11, verse 2 that we read earlier. It says, on which no one had ever sat, right? This donkey, no one's ever sat on it before. So if this donkey is symbolical of the coming kingdom of, of God, of course, nobody has sat on the throne of that kingdom other than Jesus Christ. And no one ever will sit on that kingdom. Only Jesus, because he's the one who is established to be there. So verse 16 says that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that means when Jesus died, when he was lifted up, when he was crucified, that's when he was glorified. Not when he was uh, praised by word or by action, when he was glorified by being lifted up on the cross. Then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Only when Jesus is glorified will one become fixed and established. 
Only when he's become glorified in our lives, because I've preached before about people who are living the pre-resurrected life in Jesus Christ. Those are the people who have no power. Those are the people who have no Holy Spirit living inside. Those are the people who are in appearance, not authentic. If you go back and read all the Gospels, you'll see that the disciples, they only were able to do what Jesus allowed them to do, right? They were sent out to cast out demons and do miracles, but that was only by the Spirit of God. But remember, at one time, they couldn't cast out a demon, and Jesus rebuked them and said, Oh, you have little faith. See, they were limited. Why? Because they had yet to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's the pre-resurrected life in Jesus Christ. And for a lot of people out there, Jesus hasn't died and resurrected. He hasn't been glorified in their life. He either hasn't been on a cross yet, or he may still be hanging on that cross. But we know that the cross is empty, right? The tomb is empty. It's no longer there. Those are the people whose Christ has been resurrected in their life. He's been glorified. And what does that person do? They remember, oh, yes, now I remember this scripture says this. That's why I can't do this. That's why I shouldn't do this. That's why I should trust in Jesus and wait upon him. Then in verse 17, it says, therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. So I would say a memory that is no longer alive, thriving, active. It's so because it has become a grave. It's no longer alive in the things of God. It doesn't matter if we were uh, on fire or if we were devout for 10 or 15 years. The fact is, is that if it's no longer thriving and active, that's become a grave to us. And we need resurrection by the Spirit of God. So the question is, is it authentic or is it just appearance? Our faith, everything that we're doing, our reading, our, our ministering, our praying, is it, is it genuine or is it just in appearance? It's a very important question to ask. Because if you would have asked Judas, he would have said, no, nah, I'm the real deal. And then some. Because I walk around with the king. I walk around with the Messiah. I've seen him open blind eyes and deaf ears. And, and I saw him raise Lazarus. And I've sat at the table with him. I'm real. But again, we know that he was only by appearance because we read the story, right? For him, there's no hope. For us, there's hope. For those out there, there's hope. For him, there's never hope. It's done. Is it deep or is it superficial? Is it authentic? Is it genuine like Mary? Do you, do you weep at the notion of just adoring God and worshiping God? Why? Because he is everything. He's my savior and, and he's my, my healer. And he's the one who carried me when I was at my darkest time in life, when, when, when everything just went bad. He's the one who carried me. That's why I weep when I sing about the wonderful things of God. I weep when I think about him, when I read his word, because it's alive and the spirit is alive within me. And it begins to just come together. And that's why I weep. Because it's, it's deep. It's not superficial. It's not superficial. 
It's not, again, like those marriages that, yeah, the wife is just there, but yet she, she cooks, she cleans. Or the husband's there, but yeah, he brings in the money, he pays. But it's not that, that love where there's consideration where the husband would say, uh, honey, just take it easy for a day. You don't have to cook. I'll take care of it because I see everything that you do. Or like the woman that doesn't say, I appreciate you because you work and you do so much for our family because it's just superficial. But we're called to be deep. But the reason people can't be deep in their marriages is because they're not deep in Christ. Because I've often said, and I'll stand by it till the Lord correct me, or, or, or it just continues, is that you can look at a person's marriage. And by observation of their marriage, you can pretty much tell the indication of where their relationship is at with God. Maybe not every single time but I would put money on it 9.999 times. Because if we are deep-rooted with God, we're going to be good husbands that we're called to be. Not perfect. Don't get me mistaken. And the same thing for wives. And the same thing for our children. We're not seeking out perfection, right? Because none of us are perfect. But see, this on this day, there was a lot of people. Remember, the city was in an uproar. It, it was being rocked to its core. I mean, we can't grasp the reality of what was happening because we're just reading it. But if this, I mean, had uh, an audio, we were seeing a true picture of what was happening. I mean, the world was being shaken there in Jerusalem and they were crying out, Hosanna. That means God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the one that's blessed. All hell, right? All hell, King Jesus, he's coming, riding in on a donkey. Can you picture him riding in humbly on a donkey, right? Not on a horse, on a donkey. And he's riding in and he's coming in slow. And the people are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And only a few days later, those same voices are going to raise their voice just as high, if not higher. And they're going to say, crucify him. That's a superficial faith. That's not who we're called to be. That's not who we want to be. See, because a lot of times uh, we don't have to say crucify him with our lips, but our actions say crucify him. Crucify him. Put him away. Get him out of here. That's not what America's saying with the words, but they're saying it with their actions. Crucify him. Get him out of here. That's the reality of what we're dealing with here. This man riding on a donkey, he's riding on a donkey. He knows what he's fixing to endure. He knows the humility, the humiliation. They're going to spit on his face. They're going to betray him. But yet he can still tell Judah's friend what you're going to go do. Do it quickly. Is that the character that we have, right? This humble man coming on a donkey. But we rejoice for this king that was humble and peaceful. But don't get mistaken again. He's coming back with a vengeance. He's coming back to reconcile with every person is going to have to give an answer. You want to reject me? Okay, now is the time you're going to have to pay up. That's the message we have to preach to people, especially now that the times are getting darker in America. Our voice has to become louder. We have to let our voice become louder. We have to become more bolder. Pulpits have to preach more authentically the righteousness of God. We have to stay with that. 
I mean, times are getting darker and everybody's wanting to change everything. And we need to stand up and say, no, I'm not okay with allowing transgender people to read to my children in school. I'm not okay with the filth, with you trying to confuse my children with gender identity and teach them something that we don't teach them at home. But see, it doesn't stop there. We have to be at home with husbands that we 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 have devotion with our wives and we teach our children and we guide them and we show them, not just tell them, but walk alongside them and say, son, daughter, honey, look, this is the way that we do it. And this is why we can't do this or we shouldn't do it. Now, for the woman that's not married, the Holy Spirit of God will take you by the hand ever so gently and say, look, my daughter, this is how it's done. Because he doesn't leave us astray, right? He leads us and he guides us. But we don't want to be, see, Jesus said, those who endure until the very end, those are the ones that are going to be saved. We don't want to come back next month or next year and be the ones that say, crucify him. Who do you want us to give to you? Give us Barabbas. Give us the little G God, the little son of God. Give us that one, the one that tells me that it's okay for me to sin because he's going to forgive me anyway. The one that doesn't warn me of the consequences of sin. The one that doesn't cause me to be bold to tell my children in which way they shouldn't be going. The one that causes me to be bold and stand up for the things that we should be standing up. That I want the real Jesus. I don't want the little God Jesus. Verse 19, it says that the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. See, you're not doing nothing. You're not accomplishing anything. It means that they're not having an advantage. You're not profiting nothing. You're not being advantageous to anything. So today we consider, though, though they said that, you and I who know Christ, we consider the advantage in Christ. For those in Christ, we do consider the advantage, the advantage of everlasting salvation. That's our ultimate hope. And I know that that's not the immediate joy to every person who claims to be in Christ. And if it's not your immediate joy, then you may be superficial and not genuine. Because the genuine should know that is the ultimate goal. I mean, yeah, God can bless me here and there and then some, and that's all good. But you know what? My eyes are on the prize at the end of the horizon, and that's in Jesus Christ. We consider the advantages in Christ that He is with us and He will empower us. We consider the advantage that the Bible says that we're promised to sufferings and afflictions. That is a promise. We're going to go through it, but He will give us the grace to endure and to stand. He gives us the mentality like the Hebrews that were thrown in the fire that they say, a God will deliver us, but even if He does it, I'm still going to trust Him. Like Job that says that even if he destroys me and slays me and makes an end of me, yet I'm still going to trust in my God. That's where we want our faith to end up at. That's where we want our faith to be headed in. But yet we can also consider the disadvantage. For what? For those out of Christ. For the superficial. The advantage is for the people who are deep in Christ, who are genuine. The disadvantage is for those who are out of Christ. 
Those who were in appearance. Why? Well, look at Judas Iscariot once again. I bet you he thought that he was going to partake in this coming kingdom. Probably had a rude awakening after he hung himself and he came to. He realized that everything that Jesus uh, said is true. And who knows, maybe Judas thought he, he'll save himself. I'll betray him for just a, a few shekels, but he'll, he, he's God. He can get his way out of it. Maybe he thought that, but he was wrongly mistaken. See, we don't want to go down that road and have the mentality that God, he'll just, he'll forgive me. No. Why would you want to do that? To that peaceful, humble man who was riding in on a donkey for you. He was laughed at for those who belonged to him. He endured that for you. The Bible says it's joy. There's a disadvantage to those that are out of Christ, and that is eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. I mean, it's considered a heresy in many churches to not even say that word. It's considered blasphemy. We don't talk about hell, but the Bible talks plenty about hell. And the Bible says that's a place where you can either choose to go or you can make a decision through repentance and come this way. There is a disadvantage when you're out of Christ, when it's only out of appearance. But they said something there that just resonated with me. In verse 19, the Pharisees, they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world's gone after him. Now, keep in mind, the world was way smaller back then, but there was millions of people. Because, again, you have to remember there was thousands, probably millions of Jews there that came in from all areas to observe this day of obligation, the day of Passover. Oh, yeah, they're jealous. They're bitter. They're probably just as bitter as Judas was when he saw Mary adoring Jesus, adoring him with this expensive perfume. What, what, what is this? It was an offense to him. It could have been sold. That's how the Pharisees, what is this? They're all praising after God, but they said that the whole world has gone after him. And again, that's something that just appealed to me because I asked the question, should the whole world be going after Jesus Christ? Because that's not what we see in the Bible. When we look at the ratio of people who are going to follow and people who are not, when we look at the ratio of people who are going to be saved and those who are not, the odds are against those. Right? Noah, eight people were saved out of the whole nation of peoples. Eight people. Now, that's not to say that only eight people are going to be saved at the end of times. But what that means is a ratio, eight to the majority. It's going to be very small. Jesus said, uh, the road is narrow, but the road to destruction is broad, and many are going to be those who go in by it, but few are those who are going to find that narrow road. The odds are against those who are not in Christ. The world shouldn't be going after Jesus. Now, we would want that to be our desire, but we already know that that's not going to be the case. But they said that the world has gone after him. And I started to evaluate through observation all Christianity that's happening today. And that's about where it seems like where we're at. The world is going after Jesus. Because Jesus has become the biker. Jesus has become the skater. 
Jesus, of course, has become the homeboy and he has become the cowboy. And you have all these places that say, well, now we come to cowboy church and now we have this. And they're trying to fashion Jesus in this little package that says, yeah, he's, he's, he's a cowboy. He's good with the way we dress and, and, and our lifestyle. Or, or Jesus is, yeah, he's, he's a biker now. If, if Jesus was here, he'd have a, a big beard and he'd probably wear a vest while he's riding in on that donkey. And you see how they're making less of Jesus. Because he's appealing to everybody. Jesus is, he, he's hip hop now. Jesus is hip. You know, Jesus is, Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of man. Jesus does not look at the outside. Jesus looks at the inside. But Jesus is becoming so appealing to people that now everybody wants some part of him. I mean, look around. Listen to uh, evangelistic outreaches. I mean, they almost make it impossible to not accept Jesus because, man, you're just giving me a, an offer that I can't re refuse now. If the gospel is presented properly, yeah, it's an offer that you shouldn't be able to refuse. I mean, eternity for my sins, yeah, that's, he's losing, I'm winning, is our mentality. We know that he's not losing, he's winning with every person that comes to Christ. But the reality is, is Jesus is being, they're making him palatable. That means it's, he tastes better, it's, it's easier. The world shouldn't be going after him. See, because it, it's okay, I'll bring you on my news network to talk about Jesus, but just tone it down and make it a little bit nice. Don't talk about that hell, leave that out. Don't talk about, you know, uh, sin issues, just talk about good, that God is good and, and God loves you, right? How many times do you hear the phrase that God loves you and God's not mad at you? A lot. A lot. Now, if nobody, if you've never heard it before, for those who aren't not in Christ, God is extremely mad at you because the Bible says that the wrath of God abides upon you. That's beyond mad times two times a hundred and then some. The wrath of God is beyond anger. The wrath of God upon sin. But even in Christ, if we're not living that life according to Christ's expectancies, all we have to do is flip open to the Old Testament and read story after story where God was very angry with his people because they were walking outside of his will. They were walking according to their own desires. So could it be possible that God get upset with us? And of course. And God's not like us. God doesn't play the number game. God doesn't say one, two. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, God will just watch us and watch us and he'll attempt to come after us and pull our heartstrings. But if we don't want to listen, he'll let us. Okay. It's like the Israelites. Okay. That's what's called giving them into their own ways. That's what you want. Go ahead. But then after a while, God's gavel slams and his judgment comes. That's what happened to the Israelites. 70 years in bondage and they come back. So should the world be going after Christ because Jesus has become the new thing? The, the general Jesus that's preached nowadays is not the Jesus that was preached 40 years ago. That Jesus was preached with power. 
that Jesus was preached, there was tears manifested. There was people who were coming to repentance, people coming back to God. But it takes a willing heart. So we consider the advantage. One thing that uh, Zechariah chapter 3 says, and, and I love it. It's one of the scriptures that I've memorized. And it's Zechariah chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. But it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, if you notice in your translation, angel is capitalized, so that is standing before the Lord Jesus himself. So Joshua is standing before Jesus and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So you got Jesus, you got Satan, and you got Joshua, the high priest, who is a picture of the Messiah. And the Lord said to Satan, so Jesus said to Satan, here we go. You want to talk about uh, rebuking the devil? God will do our rebuking. And he said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Just in case you get it twisted, it's the Lord that called Jerusalem. That Lord, he rebuke you. Is this not a brand that was plucked from the fire? Joshua, this high priest, I plucked him from the fire. Uh, that man, that woman, I have plucked you from the fires of the pit of hell. Now you belong to me. And when you read from that, that's when his filthy garments were taken off and he was given new garments. That's Isaiah, right? Though your, your garments uh, are, are stained or, and, and they're as scarlet, I shall make them white as snow. White as snow. That means pure. And it's not pure because we're perfect. It's pure because we have His righteousness, because we have who Christ is. Why are all those things important? Because sometimes we can go to church and it seems like we're hearing the same thing over and over again. And sometimes we can be so convinced that all of my fastings, all of my doings, they're good. But a lot of times we can fall into uh, something called performance. Now I read because I just have to do it. I was reminded of it this weekend when I was doing devotionals with my bride. And we were pressed for time. And so instead I said, you know what, let's just skip this one and we'll do it with the right heart and the right posture tomorrow. Because if you do things for God, because I, I, I have to do it, I'm late, but let me just show up to church or let, let me, you know what, let me just, I have a few bucks, let me just throw them in there just really quick and get it out of the way so that I can feel better. It's not doing any justice to God. You know, or, or whatever, you know, the, the case is, and, and we can fall into that. And Jeremiah 17 Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And to make it worse, it says that it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? But verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Remember that question they asked? I mean, when? How long is God going to take? And we ask the same question. Sometimes we ask the question when we're praying for somebody that we love and, and we want them to come to the Lord and we say, when, God, when are they going to come to the Lord? Uh, people have even said, I I've tried to follow God. I've tried to read. I've tried to do all of this. I've tried to do all those things, but nothing's happening in my life. It's not changing. You know why? Because 
Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You yourself don't even know your heart, that you're still not even ready for God. Then we understand, yeah, I can't come to Christ on my own. He has to draw me. He has to pull my heartstrings. So when you feel God pulling on you, that's the time to go. When God says, when he bids you to come and says, come, that's when you go. Because the flowers don't have a choice to say, I don't feel like blooming this morning. The birds don't have a choice to say, I don't, uh, I, I don't, I don't feel like chirping. I'm in a bad mood. My wife made me mad last night. Right? No, they're going to chirp. They're going to praise God because that's what they were created for. They're going to do as God says. The water is coming this way. Oh, yeah, when they come in in a, in, a, in a wave and they overtake, that's because God caused them to do that for his purpose. Oh, yeah, even in an election when people say, yeah, they, he, he's not my president. Because I, I, I don't even think God appreciates anybody who can take an election by cheating. That's not of God. Well, have you ever read the story of Jacob and Esau? Huh? Jacob deceived his father and he still obtained the inheritance. That was through deceit. It's not up to us to say what kind of judgment they're going to face or why. But it's up to us to just trust God and know that what... see. What I don't understand about Christians today is why they're so adamant that, that President Trump is still going to be president. I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm not saying it's really none of my business. My business is in the kingdom of God. But see, people have taken their focus off the kingdom of God, and they put it on a man. And now they want to say, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. But do they not even know that all of this fraud, which I would probably say it looks like there was some funny stuff going on. But do we not understand that God allowed that? God could have stopped it. If we believe in God, if we believe that he's sovereign, he could have stopped everything. He could have said, ah, no, sir, I don't think so. You're not going to pull out that ballot right there. We're, we're going to do things right. No, God allowed it for a reason. And as I've said before, when I'm starting to read scripture, everything that we've read about Zechariah today, it almost seems like now we're modern day. Uh, I used to say modern day Jeremiah. Same thing with Zechariah. Uh, people are just forgetting about the things that God has promised and they're wanting their own agenda to come into play. But what I see happening and I don't consider myself no prophet by no means, and I'm not even going to try to. But what I see happening, what I discern, is the judgment of God coming upon a people whose heart is becoming rotten and corrupt. And everything they do, they do it in the name of Jesus. And they need their filthy rags to be transferred for the white garment instead of wearing that dirty garment and calling themselves of Christ. Because he's become appealing to everybody. Authentic and in appearance, authentic, genuine, it's going to be known. People can discern it. People can see it. We might be able to fool some of the people sometimes, but we can't fool them all the time. And we're going to be known. Of course, the way we live our life, the fruit of our life, we want to be genuine before the Lord God. He endured this triumphal entry. Imagine if it was you riding in on that donkey, knowing uh, what was about to take place. We'd probably be trying to turn the donkey and kick him the other way. Don't, don't go there. I don't want to go that route. And actually, that's probably what we do in life with things that God allows us to endure. No, no, no. As I heard a preacher say one time, we as humans, we look for the path of least resistance. 
Where's it going to be easier? But see, God chooses the path for us where he's going to receive the greatest glory. Where can they go through something that's difficult, but they can stand and walk through that fire and they're going to come out and boy, there's going to be smoke coming out, but they're going to say, praise God, he saw me through it. That's where God gets the glory. He's not going to get the glory where it's just nice and easy and let me just, let me just walk right through it. That's not how God works. So when we start to understand that, okay, I can put it on the perspective. That's where it comes from a genuine faith. That's what we want. That pisticos, that authentic, that real, it's costly. We've considered the cost, and now we consider the advantage of it. The advantage, we don't come because of the advantage, but we rejoice because of the advantage. Eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, as we read your word this morning, we consider all the circumstances, God. God, we see the grave mistakes that your people did from the very beginning of time. And, oh, Lord, now it just becomes a burden on our hearts. As a matter of fact, that's how the book of Zechariah opens up. The burden of the Lord came to Zechariah. The burden, it's the word. Your word is a burden sometimes, God. Not because we hate it, but because it's, it's heavy. It tells us of truths, Lord. It tells us of things that we don't necessarily always want to hear. And many times things that we need to hear. But God, may we never be like the previous generations. May we even take the advice of Zechariah and say, remember those generations before you. Remember their sin. Remember their rebellion. But be faithful to God's covenant. Now, Lord, you came already, God. They saw you, but yet they didn't see you. They saw the donkey, but they didn't see the symbolism behind it because they had a different intention in mind. They wanted their kingdom ruling now with power and with authority, God. But see, you work in a different manner. Your word says that your ways are not our ways, God. So may we trust you in this. Now we uh, stand here, we sit here, we occupy as believers in the Lord Christ Jesus, uh, not waiting for you to come at the first triumphal entry, but the second one, God, the one where you come to settle accounts with every man and every woman. There will be no excuse. May that become a burden on our hearts. May we now be uh, not only the priest, but the prophetic voice that goes out like Zechariah and proclaims to the world the righteous word of God with indignation, God, that they would come to repentance and that they would put their hope and their trust in you, Lord, so that they could be clothed with that white garment as well. God, put it heavy on our hearts so that our faith uh, would be proved to be genuine and not only by appearance. 